invite you this morning for our sermon text to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue working our way through this wisdom book written by Solomon under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This morning we will be looking at verses 8 through 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is the word of the living God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they, in, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his light. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let us pray. Gracious Spirit, we ask that you would shine the light of your word upon our hearts, that you would search us and try us, that you would bring forth to our minds sins that we need to confess. Open our eyes to ways that we have been deceived and misguided by our sinful flesh and the enticements of the world. And Lord, lead us in the paths of truth and life for your name's sake, to your glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. John D. Rockefeller was the world's only billionaire at the age of 53. It is estimated that he made a million dollars a week at one point in his life, but he was a sick man who lived on milk and crackers and he was so worried about all that he had that his sleep was very poor. But once he started to give his money away, 
his health radically changed, and he ended up living to see his 98th birthday. Elvis Presley was born in a two-room shack in Tupelo, Mississippi, but he died in a mansion in Memphis, Tennessee. He overdosed on drugs that he was taking to keep him going so that he could work and keep up his lifestyle and the lifestyle for his servants and staff. In 2004, professional basketball player Latrell Sprewell turned down a three-year, $21.4 million contract to play basketball because he said it wasn't enough to feed his family. He never played another minute in basketball again. He left his wife three years later, and the family that he had to feed sued him for $200 million. This sports player went from making $97 million over his playing career to a net worth of $50,000. These are just three examples that illustrate the truth of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. And this morning in our passage, Solomon is going to talk about how all types of people, government officials as well as ordinary people, try to find satisfaction in possessions and riches rather than contentment in the enjoyment of God. People of this world try to find satisfaction in possessions and riches rather than contentment in the enjoyment of God. First, in verses 8 through 12, we see that government and possessions cannot satisfy. Governments and possessions cannot satisfy. Solomon begins in verses 8 and 9 talking about uh, corruption in governments. He describes levels of bureaucracy and tells us that we should not be surprised when we see corruption in government. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. At every level of government, from the lowest to the highest, there is a violation of God's laws. What Solomon here calls a violation of justice and righteousness. The government, which is ordained by God, according to Romans 13, to, to stand in the place of God and to uphold God's laws in the civil realm, instead Solomon sees that it's full of corruption. The high official is watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. There is oppression of the poor rather than care for the poor that God calls for. From low-level forms of government like city council or mayor to, to high levels of government like senators and Supreme Court justices and even the vice president and the president, there is corruption and injustice. The problem is that the world today assumes that people are basically good, and so the world is shocked whenever they hear of a political scandal or political corruption. I never thought so-and-so would embezzle taxpayer dollars. I'm shocked. How could he? How could she? And then we see the cronyism. Politicians look out for themselves, and they, they look out for other politicians. Whenever there is a scandal or something negative, you see the politicians circle the wagons and try to protect their own self-interest and their buddies. Even in as good of a government structure that we have here in America, a democratic republic with a system of checks and balances, we still see rampant corruption and scandal, do we not? 
how much more so with other forms of government where there are no systems of checks and balances. Think about uh, communist regimes. Think about dictatorships. Think about uh, monarchies and oligarchies, which is ruled by a small group of people. Our system of checks and balances here in America assumes total depravity and tries to limit power in order to limit the possibility of corruption and injustice, but it does not get rid of it completely. Even under as great of a rule as Solomon's rule, which we just saw described so wonderfully in 1 Kings chapter 4, Solomon still sees corruption. Solomon here sees total depravity at work and how it expresses itself in one form, namely government bureaucracy. There's a multiplication of officials and bureaucrats, and so justice is either perverted or it's slowed or it's lost in a bunch of governmental red tape. In other countries, higher officials take from the, the lower officials. There's, there's systems of bribes. And so the lower official takes a bribe, and he takes a substantial bribe because he knows that the official above him is going to take from his cut. And all of this is taking from the common folk. At the end of the day, in all forms of government, it's the so-called little people who suffer from oppression and violation of God's law. And Solomon is realistic about total depravity in the government, and he tells us not to be shocked. Don't be amazed. The implication is, is that what should really surprise us is a government bureaucrat who actually works to uphold God's laws and seeks to attain justice for the oppressed. That's what should shock us. When there's a government official who works not for himself to enrich himself at the expense of others, but when there's a government official who understands the government as ordained by God and actually works as God intended government to work, that's what should shock us. Now, verse 9 is an extremely mystifying verse in Hebrew. Perhaps there is a footnote at the end of verse 9 in your translations. And as you were reading along with me, you may have noticed that perhaps your translation says something that's kind of completely different than what the ESV has. Let me read it to you again, and I want you to follow along in your translation. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The ESV translates this passage that's very difficult to, to take the king in a positive manner uh, and sees the king as one who can keep corrupt government in check. But I think the verse is meant to be taken in a negative manner. I think the New Living Translation gets at the meaning of the verse in a clear way when it translates verse 9 this way, Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. I think that fits the context better of what Solomon is talking about here. Even the highest human ruler is not part of the solution. Rather, he's part of the problem. Think about what the, the, the people came to Rehoboam after Solomon is dead and said, Your father taxed us heavily. Free us from some of this burden. As great as Solomon's reign was, in order to keep it up, he had to tax the people, and it was a great burden to them. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Even the best rulers fall short, and even the best systems of government fall short. 
Philip Ryken says this, quote, As long as we live on this earth, we will see people buying their way to power, using public position for personal gain, and manipulating the system for their own advantage. That's the government for you. And who can take satisfaction in that? Hoping in the government to solve your problems will not satisfy. And so Solomon then turns his attention from from the government to possessions in verses 10 through 12, from dissatisfying government to dissatisfying possessions. Government officials are not the only ones who want more and more money and possessions. Now he turns to you and me, the everyday person. Verse 10, he who loves money, anyone who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The desire to love money, the desire to love wealth is in all of our hearts. It's in your heart. It's in my heart. Solomon says, if you love money, it will not satisfy. If you love goods, even their increase will not satisfy you. You will constantly want more and more. And even when your money and your possessions do increase, look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Friends and family and cousins you didn't know you ever had, they come out of the woodwork to eat up the increase of your goods. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? All you have to do is win the lottery to see this happen. I've read countless stories of people who won the lottery and suddenly their fair-weather friends and family sucked them dry. And they were just as poor as they were to begin with before they ever won the lottery. All you can do, Solomon says, is watch these people show up and eat the increase of your goods with your own eyes. This drive for more and more and never being satisfied keeps a person's mind and heart busy and preoccupied and they're not even able to sleep. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He has indigestion because he's so worried about his possessions. Uh, Howard Hughes was an eccentric millionaire and he didn't cut his hair. He didn't cut his fingernails. He moved from, from penthouse to penthouse to avoid the, the IRS. He, he, he walked in empty, clean up, clean, uh, empty tissue boxes, Kleenex boxes. He was so disfigured and disheveled when, when he died that, that they, couldn't, they had to identify him from fingerprints. He was so worried about holding on to what he had. In our day and age, the affluent have to worry about the stock market and how it's performing because they can lose millions in a day. There is no peace and satisfaction from the all-consuming lust for more money and more possessions. As As the statement goes that was popular back in the 90s, mo money, mo problems. Alistair Begg tells the story of a multimillionaire with multiple houses all over the world who owned his own private Jet, who was turning 60 years old, and on his 60th birthday, he was off in his room, sulking and depressed. And when somebody asked his wife 
why is he depressed? This is what she answered. Because he did not reach his life goal of becoming a billionaire. He had his own private jet, houses, mansions all over the world, and he was depressed because he did not reach his life goal of having more and more and more. He wasn't able to enjoy what he had because he was so focused on what he did not have. J.D. Rockefeller, who I referenced in the introduction, said that the most rewarding million dollars he made is the next million. Not the million that he's already made, but the next million that he's going to make. It's not what he already had, but it was him looking forward to what he did not have yet. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. Governments and possessions do not satisfy, and so now... Verses 13 through 17, government and possessions do not bring enjoyment. Do not bring enjoyment. Earlier in chapter 4 of this book, Solomon talked about a man who amassed riches, but he had no son to pass those riches on to after his death. Now Solomon talks about a man who has amassed riches, but he loses it all in a bad business deal. All it says is a bad venture and now he has nothing to pass on to his son so so it's vanity to to accumulate wealth and have nobody to pass it on to it's vanity to hold on to wealth and then lose it in the in the desire for more wealth and have nothing to pass on to your children the reality of the accumulation of things in this life is that they can be easily lost Back then, wealth could be lost due to shipwreck, or you could be robbed uh, along the, the trade routes, or you could lose it as a storm at sea. Uh, you could be uh, corrupt traders, could defraud you with, with unjust scales and balances. And today, people can make bad investments and lose all of their savings. Wealth can be wiped out by war or plague or famine. It can be wiped out by inflation. The things of this life can quickly come and they can just as quickly go. You've saved up for retirement or some vacation and then an unexpected medical bill hits. You're in an automobile accident and now you need a new vehicle. Your children need braces or they suddenly become sick. All manners of life events and circumstances can suddenly come up from nowhere to take all that you've accumulated from you. This man hoarded riches, but because he lives in a fallen world, those riches were taken from him, and now he finds himself in the very same position that he was in when he was born. Look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? All of those years of hard labor, all those years of hoarding up wealth and storing them in his storehouse, wasted and spent with nothing to show for it, nothing to leave behind for his family. Solomon calls this a grievous evil, an evil of evils in verse 16. And this happens to both the regular person as well as to government officials. They're not immune just because they're in a position of power because government officials can, be, can lose their positions of power. They can be easily overthrown with a, a military coup or, or, or the people rising up 
in revolt against the government. And all that money that the government officials stole through violation of justice and righteousness and oppression of the poor is now gone. Because we do not know the future and because we are not in control of our situation, government and possessions do not and cannot bring enjoyment. Do not and cannot bring enjoyment. And the result, verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. People who worked so hard, justly or unjustly, whose hearts were set on money and possessions are left in the dark. It's a metaphor for isolation and it's a metaphor for a lack of joy. And this is accompanied by anger and bitterness and misery that can bring on all kinds of sicknesses. The pursuit of mammon in this life does not result in satisfaction, but in more grief and anguish. It brings on isolation, despair, bitterness, envy, and these spiritual problems can have real physical, emotional, and psychological problems to us. That our manifestations are expressions of what is going on in our hearts. So the government and the love of money, the love of possessions, they, they will not bring satisfaction, they will not bring enjoyment. So what is the answer to these problems? What is the antidote to that drive that you feel in your heart to have more and more in order to get satisfaction from this life? Solomon tells us in verses 18 through 20 that we need to enjoy what comes from God. Enjoy what comes from God. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Solomon brings an above-the-sun perspective to answer the despair of the under-the-sun perspective of putting your, tre uh, your treasure and your heart in the pursuit of, of government power, in the pursuit of more and more possessions. Be content and enjoy what God has given you. These people are not satisfied with what they have, and they constantly want more and more and more. And the solution, the antidote, is to look at what God has given you rather than to look at what God has not given you, right? That's, that's the result. That's, that's what causes covetousness, is it not? You look at what somebody else has, and you want what they have because you're not content with what you have. Solomon has already called us once to enjoy what we have from God, and he calls us to it again because we need to hear it again. Our hearts and our minds and our desires are easily tugged at by the world and drawn away through the enticements of the world. So we constantly need to be reminded that in this life, we are called to be content with and enjoy what God is pleased to give to you and to me. If he gives us wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, then we accept that as God's lot for us in life, and we enjoy it. That's what verse 19 says. Wealth is not bad in and of itself. Possessions is not bad in and of itself. Power is not bad in and of itself. But they're bad when they become your idols. 
They're bad when they become idols in your heart. When you, when you reject the giver of the gifts and make the gift itself the main focus, losing sight of the one who gave it to you, that's when wealth and possessions and power becomes problematic. And even if God doesn't give us wealth and possessions and power, if God gives us a little bit, we are to enjoy the little that we have from the work of our hands and to enjoy it as coming from God. In all circumstances, Solomon calls us to contentment and enjoyment in what comes to us by God's sovereign providence. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much. Why? Because he is content with the labor that God has given to him and the profit of that labor, whether it's a little or a lot. He can sleep. He doesn't have that that spiritual indigestion of his heart set upon mammon and the love of money. Philip Ryken preaches this, quote, The appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied. The only way to curb it is to be content with what God provides. Charles Bridges said that when our desires are running ahead of our needs, it is better for us to sit down content where we are than where we hope to be in the delusion of our insatiable desires. Rather than always craving more, we are invited to be happy with less because we are satisfied with God. End quote. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. When we possess Christ... We have what we need to live a life of contentment, whether we have much or little, when we possess Christ. Paul in Philippians 4 said that he learned contentment in a variety of situations that were both good and bad. He learned to be content. The 10th commandment calls us to be content with what we have rather than pining for and chasing after that which we do not have. And this contentment is not just with things, but if you look at verse 20 with me, it's also contentment with time. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We are to be content with the time we have from God, for God keeps us busy here in the present so that we're not pining after uh, something unknown in the future or pining after some sort of glory days that we had in the past which is now lost to us. It's a call to be content with what we have as well as where we are. What we have as well as where we are. To live in the present rather than wasting our time ruining what we missed out on in the past or or wishing that we could have a do-over. If you could go back and do it all over again, get that question out of your mind. God calls us to focus on the present joy that he's keeping us occupied with in the here and now. And don't, don't be too eager for what is in the future. Our, our tendency is to always think that the future is, is bright and cheery, right? But there's no guarantee of that. Only God knows what the future brings, and it may not always be bright and cheery. So be content with what God gives you as far as possessions go. And be content with where God has you in the present without looking back over your shoulder 
are trying to look ahead down the road. So God calls us to contentment and enjoyment of our possessions and our time because both our possessions and our time is a gift from God in this life. But as good as those gifts are, as good as the wealth or the possessions, the the power, whatever you may have from God at the present moment, as good as these gifts are, there are better gifts coming. There are better gifts awaiting us in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes back. There is a government coming that does not oppress the poor, that does not violate justice and righteousness. It's a government and a kingdom that's not of this world. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is a spiritual kingdom not made with hands that is coming against which no human kingdom can prevail. And the king of the kingdom is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit is in your hearts if you are in Christ by faith. And he rules perfectly. He rules for the sake of his own glory. He rules with true justice and righteousness. And he has made you and me a part of that kingdom. We are part of that kingdom. You and I have a perfectly righteous and perfectly just ruler ruling over us, and he has given that kingdom to us. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is, a kingdom that cannot never be overthrown or overturned. One day the corrupt rulers and officials of this world will stand before the just and righteous king of kings and give an account of all their oppression and all their violation of God's standard and the judge of all the earth will do right in judging government officials for their abuse of power and corruption because it is sin. One day the IRS is going to have to give an account to God. One day a kingdom is coming that will not tax the common folk, that will not oppress the common folk, that will not take everything from you that you have worked so hard to gain. And as members of that kingdom, we get to share in Christ's rule. Listen to Revelation chapter 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority, that's kingly language, authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Christ shares his rule with his people. He rules over the nations with a rod of iron. And he tells us here that the one who conquers and perseveres to the end will have authority over the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, just like Christ is. Not only will we rule in this kingdom under the perfect ruler, but this kingdom will contain 
the ends of the earth. It will contain everything that you and I need to be satisfied. We will be perfectly satisfied because we will be in Christ. We will be face to face with God who satisfies us with himself in Christ and through the Holy Spirit who lives and reigns with him forevermore. We will have the consummation of the perfect righteousness of Christ and be clothed in bright garments. We will eat from the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations and all the treasures of this world will be overthrown and destroyed but we will enjoy innumerable, incorruptible, and imperishable treasures of heaven for all eternity. And when you contemplate that, that there is a perfect kingdom of perfect justice, of perfect righteousness, with perfect peace coming, doesn't that make your heart long for that day to come? Doesn't it make your heart long for the day when Christ will come back and replace corrupt governments with his perfect government and replace rusted and moth-eaten treasures of this earth which do not satisfy with perfect heavenly treasures which satisfy completely? Doesn't it make your heart glad? Doesn't it make you rejoice that Christ has made you a partaker of this kingdom. A kingdom that he is building. A kingdom not made with hands, human hands. Doesn't it make you long for that day? You possess it now, though we do not see it. One day we will see it. Oh, hasten that day, Lord, when faith will be made sight. you do not know Christ, you cannot and do not enjoy this happiness that satisfies like no earthly thing can. You do not know the joy that comes from knowing Christ. Come to him for the forgiveness of sins and he will satisfy and he alone will satisfy that longing that is in your heart that is misplaced on things of this world rather than on Christ. Come to him by faith and he will fill your hungry soul with bread from heaven. Which none of these things can fill that spiritual hunger that you have. None of the things of this world. Come to Christ forsaking your sins and out of you will flow streams of living water. Which the things of this world cannot do to satisfy your quen- or quench your thirst. Come to Christ before it's too late. Turn from sin Turn from the things of this world. Turn from placing your hopes and and trust in the government or, or possessions and money and turn to Christ who alone satisfies and contents us with himself by faith. Amen and amen. Let us pray.